Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our second live service since the last lockdown. It's so good to see you all. And uh, some of you even came back. Wow, that's amazing. Um, So we are continuing with our Isaiah Uncapped series, and um, it has been quite amazing so far. So um, yes, you're seeing me again. I did preach last week, and I'm carrying on this week. And I'm going to start with exactly the same phrase I did last week, and then we're going to take it in a slightly different situation. Who can agree that life is messy? Anybody in the room ever had a life mess? Yep. Uh, Anybody this week had a life mess? I I had one or two of those. So, what is this about? Well, the point of life and faith is discovering the goodness of God in the middle of our life mess, in the middle of the messes of life. And this is a theme that goes throughout Isaiah. Now, for us as humans, when we enter a mess or a problem or a trial, You know, there's one thing we want to happen, and that's just to get to the end as quickly as possible. Can anybody relate to that? When you're in something, you just want God to come and pull you out of it and put you at the end. We're in good company. That's what we want to do. But you know, at the same time, when I look around this room, I know that every single one of us is asking God to make us the man or the woman that he created us to be. When I look around this room, I know that all of us are praying something along the lines of, God, use me, use me, use me. What is my purpose? What is my destiny? Why am I here? I want to be significant in the kingdom. I want to do something meaningful with my life. Can you all agree? So what we don't understand is that when we find ourselves in in a mess, God isn't quite as concerned as we are just to get us out of it. And one of the reasons for that is because so often when we encounter a life mess, what God is most concerned about is how we are going to respond to him in the mess, how we're going to respond to ourselves, to others, to the world. In fact, as I am heading for my fifth decade in a few months' time, (laughs) I have realized that so often in a life mess, finding God in the middle of the mess is the point of the mess. Finding God's goodness in the middle of the mess is exactly why the mess is there. Because when I do that, it's like I learn a skill. I gather an experience. Something happens inside of me. And you know what? God is actually preparing me for something I need in 10 years' time. God is teaching me a lesson, giving me a skill, giving me an insight or a revelation that later in my life's journey will be invaluable to me. And this is why we mustn't try and just rush out of a mess. Stop and say, God, where are you in this mess? What am I going to carry out of this mess that's going to help me? See, because like that prayer that we're praying, what is my destiny? Well, here's the issue with destiny. The first time you will ever be able to look at your destiny is the day after you die. Because that's the first time you'll be able to see everything that happened. Because that's your destiny. And he has another secret about destiny. Destiny is God's business. Our business is purpose. If we live on purpose every single day, 
even if it's just a tiny little bit every day, we set God free to fulfill our destiny. And so purpose is my business, and destiny is God's business. Let's, let's look at the, at the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Um, you know, they had to wander around this desert, this barren place. I was telling the 12 o'clock service that my mom and I had the privilege of visiting Israel, I think, in 2009. And we, as you have to do when you go there, you go to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is one of the lowest places in the world. And you literally have to drive. Half of the trip is in the Negev Desert. <laughs> and I've never been in a desert in my life before. And so I was expecting, you know, Arabian sands and all of that. The Negev is just a bunch of rocks and grayness. That is all it is. It is surprisingly rocky. And it is barren, and it is hard, and it is just not a fun place to be. As a side note, um, I, I had a good giggle with God, because you know when God brought Abraham out of, out of Chal- Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? <laughs> the first place he brought him to was the Dead Sea. And I really saw the joke, because Chaldea was in the middle of the Mesopotamian basin. It was lush and green and glorious. And God said to Abraham, come, I will take you to a promised land. <laughs> And he got to the Dead Sea. And what I can imagine is God like, ta-da! <laughs> and Abraham being like, what is this place? But that's the desert that they were wandering in. And obviously, all Israel wanted to do was get to the promised land. But that very first generation that left Egypt, when they got to the promised land, they refused to go in. Why? Because they were afraid. They were fearful and they lacked trust in God. And the reason we read about Israel in the wilderness throughout the whole book of Exodus is because they were being punished. God said, okay, well, if you won't go into the promised land, there's only one other place for you, (laughs) the desert. (laughs) No one else will have you. And for 40 years, they wander around that desert. And the Bible tells us that that generation died in the desert. But the good news is, is that God raised a new generation who were bold and courageous and very determined to go into the promised land because they knew how awful the desert was, and they didn't want to live there anymore. But what none of them actually understood is that there was another reason they were wandering the desert. Remember, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were slaves. They had been slaves for about 400 years. And this is how cruel Egypt was. To keep them enslaved, Egypt fed them. They wouldn't allow them to grow crops or husband animals. What does that mean? They didn't know how to get food. They'd never needed to. It's not a kindness. It's a, it's a what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, a, it's breaking them down so they cannot provide for themselves. And so even if they wanted to run away, how would they survive? Egypt did everything for them so that all they could do was what Egypt wanted them to do. And so as they go into the desert, they have no skill, they have no understanding, but God has raised up leaders, Moses, who has a lot of skill. Moses lived in a palace. He was trained to be a statesman, so he knew how to lead. He knew how to negotiate. He knew how to deal with conflict and all kinds of things. And then he killed somebody and he fled away in despair and ended up being what? A shepherd. Moses knew how to get food in the desert. For 40 years, that's all he did is get food out of the desert for his sheep, for himself, for his family. 
I, I was saying this morning as well, I mean, Moses thought he was going to be a shepherd for the whole rest of his life, that he was just at the, at the end. And ironically, he was a shepherd for the whole of his life. He just swapped sheep for people. And, and it actually is quite clear in the Bible that sometimes he thought the sheep were better. But um, so what was God doing? Well, in those 40 years in the desert, God was training Israel how to be a nation. He was training them how to be governed, how to set up structures, how to become a, a nation with an identity and with a cohesive wholeness to them. That's what God was doing. It was not purposeless. And so in the same way, in the messes of your life, in the desert of your life, there is purpose there. We have to bear it like Israel did. No matter how much they wanted to go to the promised land, until God took them back there, they had to live in the desert. But when they got into the promised land, they knew how to be a nation. And so our key scripture for today from the book of Isaiah, you can look in your Bibles and your apps, but it will be on the screen, is Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm reading from verse 1 to verse 5. And it says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there we see it again, a voice cries, in the wilderness, make a way for the, for the Lord. In that barren, dry, hard, unhappy place, the Lord will make a highway. He will make a way for himself. He will bring the valleys up and the mountains low, so that it will be even and easy to walk on, and his glory will be revealed there. So um, last week, I uh, told you the story of the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army, and we, we met some characters. We met the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and we met his Rabshakeh, his uh, Shakira, as I kept calling it, um, and we heard about how they came to invade Jerusalem, and one of their strategies was to create a false narrative, was to create a narrative of doubt and fear, an evil narrative that said, don't trust Hezekiah, don't trust in the Lord, we are more powerful, we're going to win. And then we watched how the Lord actually used King Sennacherib's own tactics against him and, and sent him a lying spirit that whispered in his ear and, and gave him a rumor that caused him to run back to his own hometown where he ultimately was assassinated by his two sons. And then we also saw how Hezekiah sought the Lord for deliverance. He first tried in his own strength to make a bribe with Sennacherib and sort it out. And of course, Sennacherib took all the gold and silver and then carried on besieging Jerusalem. But then we watched how the Lord spoke and, and answered his prayer, spoke through the prophet Isaiah. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrian warriors were slain. It literally says in the Bible, when they woke the next morning, they just saw dead bodies. <laughs> and the Lord delivered them miraculously. And so that's chapter 36 to 38. Now, sadly, 
after this great victory, after this amazing thing that the Lord has done, this supernatural thing that God has done, Psalm 39 ends on a rather bleak note. Um, Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5 to 7 says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so the prophet announces that they will come within a generation uh, an exile for, for Judah. This is the kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. Israel, the kingdom of Israel that had split had already gone into exile. And so who knows if this must have robbed the joy of the celebration. <laughs> who knows that it must have been hard to think, okay, well, we're celebrating this, but in just about a generation, we're all going to go into exile. It, it's a hard thing. And, you know, I, I was saying this morning again that we have to understand this. When we look at these things in the Bible, it seems so harsh that God punishes his people this way. But we've, we've got to understand the prophetic destiny of Israel. And this is my opinion, and I'm happy to argue it. But Israel's prophetic destiny was to bring forth Messiah. That was why God called her. That's why God formed that nation, starting with Abraham. And from Abraham, he started prophesying Messiah. That was the point. And the point was, is that Israel was completely different, completely separate to, to any other pagan nation around her. The law God gave her, the moral compass God gave her, the way they practiced religion was completely different other than they were a holy people. Do you know holy means to be separated to or for? If something is holy, it's separated to God or it's separated for God's purposes. That's what holy means. They were a holy nation. They didn't look anything like the pagans around them. And sometimes when we read when, in Joshua, for example, when they go into the promised land, God says, annihilate every other person. That sounds really harsh. But as anthropology and history studies have, have progressed and, and, and we're learning so much more about the original inhabitants there, we realize these people were savage <laughs> Their religion was demonic. They would as soon as sacrifice you on the altar to their God as be your friend. Just depending on what was happening politically that day. <laughs> you might start off their friend and end up on the altar. And the whole way they ran their societies was not very good. And God didn't want that to corrupt the holiness of Israel. But in exactly the same vein, this is why Israel had to obey God. They were called to bring forth the Messiah. That was their point for the whole world. They were called to be a prophetic picture of God's people. And so when they sinned, when they committed adultery by worshiping idols, God punished them. And unfortunately, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's a bit of a rough read. But what you see there is continually how Israel falls into idolatry, then comes back to God, then falls into idolatry. So God's mercy and grace is shown over and over and over and over. But after a while, their sins and idolatry just build up to a point where God cannot anymore. 
And so, as I said last week, Judah was only slightly better than Israel because they repented more often. (laughs) But this is the whole issue of going into exile. And King Hezekiah was actually a really good king. He brought revival. He broke down all the idolatry, and he really served God for all his reign. But in some weird way, and that's what you see in the book of Judges, he didn't impart that to his children. Again, a very big argument for discipleship, (laughs) that the next generation will actually go further than we will. And so all of that is to say that there are three, Isaiah is broken into three sections like by theologians and academics. And the first section is, is chapters 1 to 35, which is a prophetic section, and the whole theme of that is condemnation. If you've read, if you've been doing your Isaiah readings, you would have seen the, 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 the prophecies to all the nations that were basically just saying, you're evil, this is what's going to happen to you. Then we have the short interlude in the middle that I spoke about last week, chapter 36 to 39, which is historical, and the theme is confiscation. You're going to be taken away. You're going to be confiscated from the land. But now, in chapter 40, we enter the glorious part of Isaiah, and the theme here is messianic. Remember what I said. The whole point of Israel was to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, and the theme of that is consolation. And Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus, the the prophecies of that Messiah were the consolation of Israel. When they were punished by God, when they had to take rebuke, they were consoled by by remembering, but we will bring forth Messiah. Messiah is coming. And so this is the rest of Isaiah 40. And you can imagine that after the news that they've just received, after the word they've just received, after this great victory, that Babylon is going to come and exile them, that Israel needed comfort. Can anybody agree with that? Who knows that we need some comfort after what we've lived through over the last 17 uh, months, and we're not done yet. Also, what is so great is that from chapter 40 to 55, Isaiah He's speaking to Jerusalem, but he's prophesying to a future time. We are the lucky ones to be in the future time. We are the ones he's talking to because we are the people of God. We are the spiritual Jerusalem, all bound by Jesus. Jew and Gentile, anybody, we have to have Jesus to be the people of God. That's the qualification for being a son of God. And so that's all of us in the room tonight. If not, we'll help you get that right. So Isaiah from from chapter 40 is speaking to you and I, and this is what he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort my people. Now, the word comfort appears throughout the Bible. Um, God is called the God of all comfort in 1 Corinthians. It's a theme of Scripture. But we get a little bit confused because in our modern English, when we use the word comfort, we talk about feeling better, don't we? We talk about being stroked and cherished and, you know, we use things like that's a really comfortable bed. What does it mean? And when I sleep in that bed, I can snuggle and it just makes me feel really good. And it's kind of got like quite a selfish connotation to it, comfort, you know? I just want everything the way I want it, and then I'm great. But that's not at all what the Hebrew word means. And the Hebrew word used here is nachamu. And 
uh, <laughs> I'm getting into the habit of teaching you old English words. Last, we last week, I taught you an archaic English word. Can anybody remember what it was? A bruit. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and a bruit was a rumor, but it meant a din, a clamor, a loud noise. Um, and, and this word comfort comes from the old English, and it literally means to come and fortify. Come fort, to be fortified. Does anybody know what fortified means? To be strengthened, to be encompassed about, to be encouraged, to be in a place of security. And so it's got a much stronger meaning than the way that we use it. And so what Isaiah is prophesying is, come forth, my people, and be fortified. And he says it again, come forth, my people, and be fortified. Be strengthened, be encouraged, and find security in me. It's not about feeling better. It's about receiving aspects of God, receiving who he is into your own heart. And of course, anytime the Bible say something twice in a row. It's, it's highlighting it, okay? It makes sense, doesn't it? And Paul writes and says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. So we really do need a lot more rejoicing. May that season of high fives and, and real hugs come soon, Lyrical. But God is emphatic here, and God is saying to Isaiah, comfort, speak comfort, speak my comfort, speak my strength, my encouragement, my security to my people. Tell her that I have strength, encouragement, and security for her. He is emphatic on that. He goes on to say, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. We are the spiritual Jerusalem today. We are joined in this prophecy. It is our prophecy. And the Hebrew words that, that we translate as speak tenderly to her literally mean speak to the heart. And the first time we see that Hebrew word is in Genesis 34, Verse 33, it's, it's Prince Shechem speaking, and he says, says, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, and he spoke tenderly to her. It's not actually a very nice story, but it ends on a happy note. And that is romantic. Shechem is drawn to this beautiful young woman so much that he, he has to be with her, and he speaks to her tenderly like a lover. God is speaking to you and I like a lover. He is the lover of our souls. He wants to embrace us and encompass us with everything that he is. Now, a verse that has become quite one of my favorites, and it's something that I use a lot in counseling, especially when we're talking about grief and loss, is Psalm 34, verse 18. And it says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Can you see that this verse is also emphatic? God says he is with the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. This is one of the unconditional promises of the Bible. To just caveat here, most of the, of the promises in the New Testament have a condition attached to them. Obedience is usually the condition in some form or another. And we do this thing where we quote the promises of God and we never finish the scripture. <laughs> and it's good. Let's quote the promises of God, but let's also read the condition. <laughs> but this is one of those unconditional scriptures. But if you really look at it, there are actually two conditions. 
you should be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. <laughs> but, what is, but what God is saying is the second you're brokenhearted, however you ended up there, the second your spirit is crushed, whatever caused that, he is there. He is right there with you. He is. That is the promise. If you are brokenhearted, he is right there. But he has the problem. And it's the same with the comfort, comfort, my people. When I'm brokenhearted, do I know how to turn around and acknowledge him? When I'm crushed in spirit, do I know how to receive the salvation of my soul? When I am in desperate need of encouragement, strengthening, and security, do I turn and push into the comfort of God? You see, it's a choice. It's there. Will we step into it? And last week I spoke a little bit about the fact that as Christians, we believe. Believing is great. We must believe. That's where it all starts. But receiving is the point of believing. If I believe and I do not receive, the power is missing. The power that changes our hearts, our minds, our lives, our whole existence is missing. And so the challenge for us is next time we're brokenhearted, we, we need to turn around and go, God, you are here. I'm going to find you. Now, I, I as a pastor, as a, as a teacher, I've explained this verse in this way to many people. And the Lord has looked at me and said, Greg, you better be living it. <laughs> and it's hard because we're human. And sometimes when I'm brokenhearted, I just want somebody to blame. And so I know God's there, but I'm like, no, God. No, I want to feel the hurt. I've been so hard done by. Why do you hate me? And God's like, I'm right here. And there's some kind of payoff for me. I know he's there, but I won't go. But I've had to learn if I'm going to keep teaching this verse, I better be living it and experiencing it. And so now I know when my heart is broken, I go straight to Jesus. And you know, some of the reason why I don't want to go straight to Jesus is because when I step into his presence, because he is absolutely holy and pure and true and has no shadow of any pretension in him, I very quickly realize that some of the brokenheartedness is my own pride, is my own arrogance, is my own stupid stuff that I did. And I don't want to face that. <laughs> Sometimes the reason I need comfort is because of exactly the same reasons. And God is not shouting at me. God is not rebuking me. He's just absolutely holy. He is just who he is. And when I step in, I see myself. And so we have to learn as Christians to receive the comfort, to receive the unconditional promise. I am brokenhearted. Recognize that first. Then immediately think, God is right here. God has not forsaken me. The promise is he is here. So if he's here, I better step in. And when I find out that some of that brokenheartedness is my own stuff, I better just push into him more. And that's how I will be comforted and healed. And so what Isaiah is telling us as well in the scripture is that we can receive and accept God's comfort because it is based on some very specific reasons. And he lists three. The first one is that her warfare has ended. So at the moment that Isaiah is speaking this to Israel, they've just had a massive victory that they didn't have to fight. Isn't that amazing? 
They were besieged. They were expecting absolute bloodshed and destruction. The king disappears. The angel of the Lord just kills everybody else. It's done. However, they get the bad news that in a generation there's going to be some warfare. But what, what Israel also understands is that this prophecy is also for future times. And so even though there's a chance of warfare coming to Israel, what she understands is that there will come a time where there will be no more warfare. Not only will there be no warfare, but there will be no more um, fear of it coming. No oppressors will be coming. No tyrants will be coming to confiscate them, to besiege them ever again. What an amazing time. And so this would have comforted historical Jerusalem that she would live in peace and never fear an oppressor again. But God speaks to us in the same way. Romans 8 verse 37, No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors. Through who? Him who loved us. Who is that? Jesus. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus. So the battle still looms, but as far as it concerns you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, our warfare is ended. Why? Because 1 John 4 verse 4 says what? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. What does greater mean? Shout it out. What does greater mean? Better, stronger, bigger. Greater. What is the scripture saying? Jesus, God, is greater than who? Who is he greater than? Not a trick question. Satan. <laughs> now, this is really, really important because our warfare is ended. And I know some of you completely disagree with me. But it is. Why? Because he is greater than our enemy. Let's get honest about who Satan is. Satan is a prisoner in a prison cell. Hell is not Satan's kingdom. He is the king of nothing. He is a prisoner in a prison cell designed for him and the third of the angels who followed him. It was never designed for human beings. Unfortunately, because we are eternal and we have to go somewhere when we leave this physical body, we were meant to live in it forever, but that changed because of sin. There's only two places we can possibly go. But hell was never, ever intended for people. And Satan is not a king. He is a prisoner being punished. Hell is his punishment. What we see Satan doing on the earth today is because he is in punishment. He cannot do good anymore. You get what I'm saying? God and Satan are not equal. Satan is a created being. He's an angel, a very high-level angel, but nonetheless an angel. God is Satan's king. And this is also really important because here's what the facts of Christianity are. Satan is way more powerful than me, but I have way more authority than he does. He has no authority. And this is very important. And so, yes, there is a battle we are fighting, but it's now in our head and our heart. We have no oppressor. The oppressor has been put in jail. The only way he can oppress us is by our agreement. Because we have free will. We can choose right, we can choose wrong. We can choose life, we can choose death. 
in the book of Joshua. It's right there. Great. It's your choice. You're at the promised land. There's everything I've given you. You're going to have to fight a little bit for it. But you choose. It's life or death. What are you going to choose? And we can choose to agree with Satan because that is all the influence he has is to whisper to us like Sennacherib, to come and bring false narratives of fear and disaster to us. And if we agree, he can have influence over us. But he's still not our oppressor because we can equally agree, even after we've agreed with him, we can still agree with Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? And so our warfare has ended. And there will be times when we sense the devil is attacking through sickness or harassment or whatever. But our warfare is ended. We don't find an army and all march through. We, what do we do? We say, in Jesus' name, I rebuke you. You fall to the ground. You go to the feet of Jesus. We are done. Do you understand? That's not warfare. That's victory. We fight from victory. That's why we can do that. Because otherwise, every single time Satan loomed, Jesus would have to get back on the cross. The victory is won. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Lord Jesus Christ. You have the victory. Now again, like the brokenheartedness, like the comfort, will we receive it? Next time you feel the attack of the enemy, don't fight him. Stand in your victory. Rebuke him. You know, I don't even rebuke Satan. I don't, I'm not interested in Satan. I don't care what he thinks this is. I, my authority is in Jesus. He is, he is more powerful than me. He can make things shift and do crazy things that just terrify me. I'm not interested in that. The second I sense demonic, I just go, Jesus, will you come right now? And this is what I say. Stop it. Go to Jesus. I don't know what Jesus does with him. I don't care. Do you get what I'm saying? That's what victory looks like. Are you guys getting this? So we no longer strive in our own strength, but now we fight from victory that Jesus has already won. Shout across the room to somebody, no Bluetooth thing. You're victorious. <laughs> Great, now receive it. Say, I'm victorious. Yes. So, so this is why we can have comfort in God. Our warfare is done. No oppressors are going to come and confiscate us. Secondly, that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, at the moment Isaiah spoke this to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was very well aware of her sin. Why? Because for 35 chapters, Isaiah told them what their sin was. They knew it. Um, yet the prophet speaks of a day when comfort can be offered because her iniquity is pardoned. <clears throat> now, I got, uh, if you go to the next slide, I got, oh, there it is, Psalm 21. It's not Psalm 21, it's Psalm 32. I, got, I, I did this late last night and my brain stopped working. So it's actually Psalm 32, verse 1. Um, and it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You are the one whose trans transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. You are blessed. And this is real comfort, to be recognized as a sinner, as having iniquity, yet knowing just as much that your iniquity is pardoned. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Now, 
I don't think ancient Israel understood that the world was a ball, was a globe. But this is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, there's north and south, right? Who can tell me how far can you go north before you start going south? Say it out loud. Yeah, so, when you, so if, we, if we head north from South Africa, <laughs> somebody got it this morning, everybody was like, what? <laughs> we go all the way up and up and up, and we fight some polar bears, and then we get to the North Pole, and as soon as we cross the North Pole, what direction are we going? And then how far can you go south before you're going north? Same thing. So you go to the South Pole. So it's limited. I mean, it'll take a while, but it's limited. And you will keep crossing over and then going in the other direction. So it's not finite. This is what the Bible says. As far as the east is from the west, he has cast your transgression. How, how far do you have to walk before west before you start going east? You can walk west forever. You can walk east forever. You're getting it. Are you getting it? See, God didn't say, so this is revelation. How did they know that? The Holy Spirit said it. He might have just thought it was a pretty poetic moment, but the Holy Spirit knew we would know. So what is the psalmist saying? He says, when it comes to your sin, it's as far as the east is from the west. Let's say God threw it into the west and you're walking east. Will you ever encounter your sin? Now, if he had said north or south, you would encounter it. And that would mean that when God got cross or when, something, or when you acted up, God would remind you of your sin because it's there on the North Pole and you're getting close to it again. But that's not how he works. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgression. And yes, we are still struggling with sin, but even the sin we are struggling with is covered. And this is why we stop sinning. We don't have to do it anymore. As a counselor, I know that 90% of the reason we sin is because of the battle in our mind and the battle in our heart. Because we misunderstand God, we misunderstand ourselves, we misunderstand the world, and we choose idols. If there is habitual sin in your life, it's actually your attempt to comfort yourself in the wrong form of comfort, just feeling better. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's emphatic. Again, there's no condition there. We understand the condition is repentance and confession and seeking Jesus. But when you've done that, what happens? You are covered by the blood. And so what that means is when I sin, I just confess. And, and let me remind you again, the second you realize you're sinning, just confess to God and make right with Him. There is no other way to get free of sin except the blood of Jesus, and you're already free. So confess. Confession keeps our hearts clean. If we find ourselves confessing 16 times a day, that just means we need to go speak to another person and ask for help. We need to let go of the shame and get rid of the shame and ask somebody else to help us with what we're struggling with. But what we do is we realize we're sinning, then we take six weeks to confess, then we take three months before we come back to church and pray. That's the enemy again. It's not a battle. It's us agreeing with shame. It's us thinking we can make ourselves right enough to come back to God. Nonsense. Repent quick. 
Because we are his children, we can claim the righteousness of Jesus as our own before God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. God has set it up with Jesus. That's the whole thing about the cross. They made an agreement. Great. When this thing is done, every human being, I will look at them through you. Everybody who, who chooses you as their Lord and Savior, when they come to me, I'm looking at them through you. I see your righteousness. I see your obedience, Jesus. So wherever they are, they're covered in you. Do you get that? So we can have comfort in God because our iniquity is pardoned. And then lastly, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it's stated in a strange way. But what this is saying is that the basis for our comfort here is that is the pardon of iniquity, that sin has been completely paid for. What, what God is saying to Jerusalem is because of your sin, you have to pay me double back. But here's the surprise. You have to pay me double back, but I'll pay it. I'll pay it double back. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Titus 2.14, who who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawfulness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, bought with a price. What was that price? Double for your sin. Whatever your sin is, Jesus paid double. Why did he pay double? Because he was utterly sinless and utterly obedient, and utterly pure and holy, and he should never have died. But he's the only one who is an acceptable sacrifice, simply because of that fact. So he paid double, because he died on the cross, but he never ever deserved to. So that we would never ever have to die on the cross, because we do deserve to. Do you get that? A double portion paid back. And that word redeem takes us to the slave markets of the pagan world. And, and what that's about is, if, if you, as, as slaves in the old world, sometimes their masters would encourage them to do business because then they would get some extra money in for themselves. And shrewd slaves would be able to actually save up enough money to get the master's permission to go back to the slave market, to the man who sold them, and get a certificate of redemption. Let's say the price was six silver coins. Well, as soon as you had six silver, you could take that to the slave market, pay it in, and you got a certificate of what? Redemption. And if you carried that with you, nobody could treat you like a slave ever again. This is what Jesus did. He went to the slave market of sin, and he paid exactly the price that was needed for you and for me, for every single person on this planet, but we have to receive it. We've got to actually go there and fetch our certificate. That's believing in him as Lord and Savior and trusting him for salvation. And so that double payment, God paid himself. And the reason for that is because if God just looked at us and said, you know what, you're a, you've, you've repented, you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what you did, it's okay, just come. That would mean he's, he was a wicked judge. God is a God of justice, he's a God of righteousness. And so justice demands a price. Righteousness calls this right and that wrong. We can't make it gray now. And because of that, that's why Jesus came. 
So we have received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. It is our sin-bearing Savior, Jesus Christ, who received the cup of wrath from the Lord's hand, double for our sins. And Isaiah actually prophesies to, the, to Jesus on the cross, and he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Chapter 30, 53, verse 5. And so can we take comfort today in the fact that Jesus has paid exactly the right price to redeem us? We have given God back double for our sins because of Jesus. And then, of course, chapter 40 ends with such a beautiful exhortation to keep trusting in the comfort of God. We can trust in God's comfort because our warfare is ended, because our iniquity is pardoned, because the double price for our sin has been paid for us. But Isaiah 40, 29 to 31 says this, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Can you see comfort, strength, and encouragement and security? Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not Father, we just thank you for your comfort, Lord. And God, wherever we are today, maybe you just need to think of the situation you're in. Where do you need to come and fortify yourself? What do you need to bring to the Lord and, and, and find his strength and his encouragement and his security? Father God, we bring these things to you. However we ended up here, whatever brought this on, Lord God, we are asking for your true comfort tonight. And God, may we be a people who receive it, Lord. We believe it tonight, but God, we want to be a people who receive it and live it out in our lives, Lord Jesus. Comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people. God, just pour, pour that into our hearts tonight, Lord God. Let us see you. Let us know you. Let us see how strong you are, Lord God. Let us see that our warfare is ended, that we can bring you our hearts and our minds, that we can let your word absolutely renew and wash our thinking and our feeling, Lord God. That our sins are pardoned, God, that when you look at us, you do not see our sin. You see the righteousness of Jesus. And can we push into that, Lord? And thank you, thank you, thank you that the double portion is paid, Lord God, through you, Lord God. We give you all the glory and honor tonight, Lord Jesus. Amen.